Right, let's turn again to Ephesians chapter 5. And tonight we want to consider marriage from a biblical perspective. Not only a biblical perspective, but we want to consider marriage from uh, the perspective of, of the gospel. Now, I believe all of us tonight in this auditorium recognize that marriage in our world and our culture is under assault. Just the definition of marriage itself. What is marriage? What defines marriage? Well, God's Word defines marriage for us. We recognize as Christians that marriage was given to us as an institution by God. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we, we see the, the beauty of marriage. Marriage that was given to uh, creation, to people. Marriage is right and good whether or not we are Christian tonight because it is a creation institution. One man, one woman, just as God created Adam and Eve. And, and God was the one that brought them into union one with another. Marriage is a marvelous, mysterious institution whereby God is the one that is responsible. God is the one that has the authority to cause a man or a woman to go from a state of singleness to a union with another. God is the one that changes the status of single to married. So creation helps us to see marriage as God instituted it. But also as Christians, we see marriage in even a higher plane. See, it is right, I believe, as a man or a woman created by God, it is right even for unbelievers to be married in light of God's Word, Genesis chapter 2. But as Christians, we see marriage in even a higher plane than creation, the creation institution. We see marriage in light of the Gospel itself. Now, tonight, if you are married, then certainly this ought to be an encouragement to you, to us. If you're not married, it might be that you will be one day if God blesses you and His providence. So, obviously, the message is important to those that are single. It's important to all of us as Christians, to you as a member of Fairhaven Church, as you seek to encourage and help others that are married or that are going to marry. So you want to be equipped to counsel, to give encouragement, to direct, to instruct. So it's a, mer it's a, a message tonight, no matter uh, what your status is. Um, it's important to understand what God's Word says about marriage. So let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to actually read uh, verses 22 through 33. And I want you again to see marriage from a perspective of the Gospel. Not just the creation ordinance, Adam and Eve, joined together by God, one man, one woman, uh, a monogamous, heterosexual relationship for life. I want us to see beyond that and see how Paul emphasizes the importance of marriage from a New Testament perspective in light of the Gospel. 
So notice the emphasis in these verses upon Christ and salvation through Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave, He gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. You see the emphasis upon Christ, Christ, uh, His salvation for His church. Our marriages as Christians are to mirror, they are to reflect the relationship that Jesus Christ has with His church. So when you sit down and begin to list the reasons why you should get married or list the reasons um, the ways that you can be a good witness to your community. Um, marriage and the gospel should be right there at the very top. One of the reasons if you're single you should get married if, if uh, God has called you in, in that area is to evangelize. It's not very romantic, is it? But marriage is an opportunity for the Christian to reflect to the world the gospel. So you see why it is so crucial that we understand our roles as husbands and wives, that we understand the gospel itself, because our marriage is to be an instrument, a, a, an institution, whereby we can reflect to our church and to our communities what the love of Christ looks like. So when your community looks at you at Fairhaven, when your community looks like at your marriage, they ought to see in your marriages the gospel. They ought to see portrayed the truth of salvation, the relationship that we have with Christ as the church. So let's begin in verses 22 through 24 with the role of, of the wife. And see how the wife's role is to reflect the church's responsibility to Christ in submission. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So the wife is called upon by God, and this is God's institution. It's uh, God's plan. So God's the one that has the right to uh, teach us 
the roles that we have, and the role for the wife is uh, to be uh, in submission to her husband, to her husband, to her own husband. So the Bible is not instructing you sisters to be uh, submissive to, to men, but rather to your own husband, to your own husband. Isn't that sweet? He is your own husband. Can you appreciate that? That He is your very own. Uh, that's what Paul says here. We uh, recognize that the wife is to be submissive unto her own husband, not um, to other husbands, not to other men, but to her own husband. And then in verse 24, in everything. Now, obviously we recognize from Scripture that anytime someone would entice us or instruct us to do anything outside of God's revealed will, we are not to be a participant. So obviously, there are parameters, safeguards. Uh, there are areas where it would be wrong for a wife to be submissive to the husband if the husband was commanding her to do something contrary to the Bible, to be disobedient to God. But within the parameters of God's revealed will, we see where the wife has a responsibility to, to submit, to line herself up under her husband. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul will refer to the responsibility that children have to be submissive to their parents. I, I want us to recognize that uh, the role between parents and children is not exactly the same as the husband-wife. The submission is different. So the wife is not to be treated like a child. Uh, we recognize the Bible says that men and women were both created in the image of God. And in that sense there is equality. The submission here is not based upon uh, value or worth or inequality. We, we recognize that men and women both, women too, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Men as well as women, or women as well as men, are created in the image of God. There's a way that a woman is also created in the image of God. So the submission here has no reference to the woman's value or worth. Obviously, as uh, most of the husbands here tonight, if not all of them, would uh, agree with me in, it's not based upon intelligence. It's not because men are more intelligent. Uh, it's not always based upon the fact that men are more spiritual. Too many times I've seen in churches where it seemed like the women or the wives were more spiritual than the husbands and men. The submission is based upon God's definition of what the roles are in marriage. So this is God's commandment, God's instruction. And the wife is to align herself up under the husband's authority, because this was God's design. And ultimately, as a Christian wife, you are aligning yourself up under your husband's leadership because you recognize that your submission is unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. Just one of the many reasons why it is important that Christians marry Christians. Because for an unbelieving woman to be married to a believing husband, there would be no ability to carry out this responsibility. Because she has no understanding 
spiritually. She has no way to grasp with heart and faith what it means to be submissive unto the Lord. Just as the church is submissive to Christ, the wife is to be submissive to the husband, to his leadership, to his direction. Does that mean that the husband is never to seek guidance or counsel? Obviously not. That would be uh, foolish for a husband to say, well, because I'm the head, that means I never ask my wife's opinion um, uh, or, or listen to her viewpoint. That's, that's ludicrous. That's crazy. But what Paul is saying is, ultimately, the husband of the home is the one that bears that responsibility of leadership. And finally, conclusively, he is the one that makes the final decisions and seeks to lead his wife, his home, in the way of Christ. Paul not only instructs us in this truth in uh, Philippians, but also in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, the setting's a little different in 1 Peter 3. Here the relationship is between a believing husband and an unbelieving wife, or vice versa, an unbelieving uh, husband and a believing wife. You can see the application, uh, whether it be a husband that is a believer or an unbeliever, um, wife that is a believer, unbeliever. When one partner is an unbeliever, the other is a believer. But again, we see the principle of subjection or submission. 1 Peter 3.1 Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Again, own husbands, not to just uh, men in general, but to your own husbands. That if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So here is a wife that's married to an unbelieving husband. And just because he is an unbeliever does not free her uh, from that role distinction. Peter would go on to say, be in subjection and live out the gospel before him because it may be that God will use your testimony and your life as an instrument to convert the husband. Now that's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. Um, notice back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, this chapter deals with marriage, marriage and divorce, uh, singleness. A lot of issues are addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, it's been the death of many a pastor. Um, but uh, let's look at it anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want you to see the power of the gospel in a life that is lived for Christ. And especially in light of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find where the Israelites had married uh, women from other nations. And it was going to uh, mar the lineage. The lineage of the Israelites. Especially the lineage from which Christ came. And there was a special situation there. And God said that uh, divorce was necessary in order to provide uh, the protection that Israel needed so that they did not lose their distinction as the people of God. But that was an exception. Sometimes people may look at that and say, well, it looks like God is encouraging divorce. No, He's not. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, here Paul deals with when a believer is married to an unbeliever. In verse 10, we'll begin reading. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart, that means divorce, from her husband. 
But, and if she depart, all right, here is the unbelieving wife, if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak, I not the Lord. Okay, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. That doesn't mean that Paul here was not writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He was simply addressing a situation that Jesus never addressed. So it's not just Paul's opinion. He's saying here that Jesus in his life never addressed this issue. But it's still authoritative. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. I don't want to encourage you, church, because you may have a situation where you're giving counsel. And the world might say, or other Christians might say, listen, if you stay in this relationship with this unbeliever, it is going to mess up and scar the children for life. But here is what God says. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. God said, when you live out the gospel with unbelievers, rather than destroying the children, it actually can be used to convert the children. To me, that's powerful. That's the power of God working through His people when they respond in faith and obedience. So, and tonight we're not even trying to go down the road of, of exceptions. What about if there's abuse? I'm, I, you know, I'll leave that for your future pastor. <laughs> I, I realize there's exceptions when they're for safety, but we're just talking about under normal situations where there's an unbeliever, uh, the believing spouse should not try to get out of the marriage simply because they're concerned about how it might affect the children. Paul is saying... One believer living out the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, teaching the gospel, can actually have a powerful impact upon the lives of the unbelievers in that home. And that's how it's different from Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Here in the New Covenant, we see the power of the Holy Spirit working through believers in marriage. So the wife is to be submissive to uh, the husband. And then... In Titus chapter 2, you uh, sisters certainly want to be knowledgeable of this chapter because you have a responsibility to, to teach uh, younger women. Titus chapter 2 verse 3, they, The age of women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So how do you respond if a young sister comes to you and uh, there's some difficulty and you say, listen, listen, honey, you got to stand up for yourself. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not a place for speaking clearly and truthfully, uh, but, but the counsel would not be, listen, if he doesn't act the way that he should, then just totally disregard him, you know, throw him a pillow and a blanket and say, buddy, you're going to sleep in the doghouse. You know, don't let him get away with anything. Don't you listen to him. 
That's contrary to the way that, that God is teaching us as Christians that we ought to respond. The, the older sisters or the aged sisters should teach the younger sisters to be obedient to their own husbands. Uh, to teach the young women to love their husbands. Instead of saying, listen, don't you take that from him. You know, you get right back in his face and this and that. Obedient. Obedient. Uh, I like listening to, to uh, you know, some of the sappy love stories sometimes that are told and noticing how they love to take that expression out of, you know, those traditional vows. Obedient, obedient to Him? That's archaic and old. That's old-fashioned. Well, it is old-fashioned, about 2,000 years old. But it is a principle that's not based upon cultural setting. It is a principle that is uh, interwoven into the institution of marriage by, by God. By God. So the wife is to be submissive. Why? Because ultimately her submission is not toward the husband. It's not based upon his worth. Uh, it's not based upon how intelligent he is, uh, how much pay that he brings home. Ultimately, it's based upon the wife's love and respect for Christ. She's submitting to the Lord, ultimately, because she loves Christ that much. So that's the responsibility of the wife. And again, we see how it's connected to the gospel. See, if a, if, a, if a woman is not a believer, she's not going to be able to grasp what it means to submit her life to her husband ultimately so that she can submit her life unto her Lord. To her Lord. Now, sometimes you read that and you say, well, the women have it so easy, the men have it really, really... I mean, the women have it hard, the, the husband has it really easy. And, but as we continue, I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, actually, both roles are impossible without the grace of God. But we're going to see how we're fueled by the Gospel in this. Because now the husband has the responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now think about that. You say, well, the husband, his... his role is so easy. Really? Loving your wife as Christ loved the church is easy? That's a big task. That's a big responsibility. So here, Paul begins to instruct the husband. So he's not going to take advantage of his leadership. Oh, I've got the leadership. I'm the man, you know. It's not that he's a, a macho man, you know. He... Uh... No, he's a... He's a... Uh, 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 a lover of Christ. He's a lover of Christ so much that he's going to love his wife in all situations. When she's sweet and um, and submissive, and she's got on makeup and she's fixed just right, he's gonna he's gonna love her. And uh, on those days that she's just having bad hair day, and, um, maybe she's tired. And, agitated, not easy to get along with, what is the husband going to do? He's going to keep loving her then. Um, so in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, all right, husbands. Love your wives even, even as. See, here's the gospel aspect of marriage. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. So husbands, you're to love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Now, 
when Christ loved us and gave himself for us, was it because we were so beautiful and wonderful? No, not at all. Matter of fact, he gave himself for us when we were enemies, when we were unlovable. So that's the kind of love that we've got to express uh, to our wives. It's the sacrificial love. It's the same love that Christ demonstrated when he laid down his life for us, when he delivered himself up on the cross in order to save us, in order to redeem us. So again, you see how we're taking the creation ordinance in Genesis chapter 2 and we're seeing it in a whole new uh, sense and, and a higher sense in the sense of the gospel and, and with what God has done for us in Christ. So we're to give ourselves as husbands to our wives, to what is in her best interest, what would bless her. So let the husbands... Uh, love the wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So it's a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. It's not, hey, I'm the leader of this house and I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to sit here in my recliner and uh, drink my sweet tea and don't bother me. I'm the king of this house. That's not going to be his attitude. And the wife's attitude is going to say, sit in the recliner and I'll bring your sweet tea. <laughs> Just watch, you see how there's this meeting in the middle. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then in verse 26, that he, uh, Christ, he gave himself for his church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the reason Christ laid down his life for us. Not because we were holy, not because we were unblameable, but it's through Christ that we are holy. It's through Christ that we no longer are blameable. We're no longer condemned. Ephesians says we're holy and without blame before God in love. How can we be before a holy God in love? It is only through Christ. As Christ laid down His life for us, He did this in order to sanctify us, in order to cleanse us. And it's through His redemptive work then that we see how the work of sanctification continues in our life as the Word of God continues to cleanse us and direct us and guide us and convict us of our sins. So God's love is a love that is sacrificed through Christ for us in order to make us holy. God's redemptive work in Christ was meant to and does make a difference in our life. And what Paul here is saying is, this is the kind of love that husbands ought to have for their wives. They want to encourage their wives in the Lord. They want their wives to see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Christ so that they might be more and more sanctified. Husbands ought to be the instrument as they love their wives to help sanctify and bless and help wives to grow in the things of God. So that means, husbands, we have to be men that are growing in knowledge, growing in our faith, growing in our understanding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verses 34 and 35, 
It seems like in the public worship, the women were asking questions in such a way that it was um, um, disrupting the service. They were asking questions in such a way that they were uh, assuming authority that they did not have. I don't believe 1 Corinthians 14.34 is a proof text as to why women can't ask questions in Bible study. I think there's something else going on here other than a woman that has a question. It seems like it's caused disruption. There's a problem with authority. And here's how Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. All right, so here we find where the wife is to ask her husband at home. And the implication is the husband ought to be spiritual enough that he can answer the wife's questions. So the husband is to be leading his family, his wife, in such a way that he is encouraging her growth in the Lord. So you young sisters, it's important you marry a Christian man because he ought to be the kind of man that can lead you in a closer walk with God. And I'm not just talking about this boyfriend that will come to church before you're married because he wants to win your hand. Not just because he says, I love Jesus. I've met plenty of those guys. They love Jesus. No, they love or have some kind of attraction for you. And they'll pretend that they love God enough so that you know, they can woo you so that they can be married to you. What I'm talking about, when I talk about marrying a believer, is one that manifests their faith in Christ by a holy pursuit of God and obedience, whose life manifests that there is true faith, not just lip service to Christ. Somebody that is pursuing Jesus Christ with great zeal and love and motivation. Okay? So let's, let's, you know, it's not good enough just to say, well, they said they love Jesus. They were baptized when they were 10, um, you know, but uh, they, just, they just love hunting so much. They just love fishing so much. They just work so much during the weekend that they just have to sleep in on Sunday. If that is their attitude, you don't want them because you want your husband to be the kind of man that can lead you in the way of Christ. In the way of Christ. Um. And I'm sure the members here and pastors and, and, uh, and a counsel from parents, godly parents, a lot of times you see, they, can see, they can see this where when you are so caught up in the person that you might fail. So it's not because Christians are just hard-hearted when they say, hey, I'm not so sure about this. It's because they might see things that you don't because you're blinded. You're blinded. He is such a gorgeous guy, you know, that you can't see uh, some of the things that maybe others can see. So this is the kind of love, brothers, that we've got to have for our wives tonight. We've got to be praying with them, and sharing the Word with them, and encouraging them, and giving them the opportunity so that they can have devotions to the Lord, giving them help and, and rest so that they can spend time with God as well. This is marriage in light of the gospel. So he's have a sacrificial love. He's have the kind of love that's going to encourage her in the ways of God. And then in verse 
28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. By the Lord, He loves His church. He, his purpose is to nourish and cherish it. Cherish His church. Isn't that encouraging tonight as a local body? You might be thinking, I don't know if God even cares about us. He cares about His church. He cares about His people. And His purpose is to nourish you, to nourish you as the church, to encourage you, to help your walk in faith. And again, this is the kind of love that husbands have to have for the wives. They, they're going to nourish the wife. They're going to care for her. They're going to uh, love her above all others. Verse 34, we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. And then Paul is going to quote from Genesis 2. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Alright, we as the church, we are members of His body, we are members of His flesh and of His bones. Now, he's speaking in the spiritual sense here, how, how we are united to Jesus in, in uh, salvation. We are united to Jesus. That's what salvation ultimately is. It's being in union with Christ. Um, uh, when, when Jesus died, we died with Him. When He was buried, we were buried with Him. When He was raised, we were raised with Him. When He ascended back to heaven, we ascended back with Him in a sense because we are in union with Christ. And that's what Paul means when he writes, we are members of His body. We are joined to Jesus. We are His body. We're His flesh. We're His bones. And then in order to prove that, he quotes from Genesis 2, 24. Because when God instituted marriage in Genesis 2, He had the church in mind. God created marriage in Genesis 2 in light of the church that would come thousands of years later. Isn't that amazing? So when a man and a woman are joined together in marriage... They are reflecting the union that God has with His church. So let's turn back and, and see this uh, verse that Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And just real quickly, we see the, the institution of marriage and then again how it's given in a higher uh, uh, plane in, in the New Testament. Alright, Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet or suitable for him. So none of the animals were compatible. So man's best friend is not Rover. All the animals came before Adam. He named them all. And at the end of the day, he's still alone. So God says, I'm going to make a help, a helper for him. A, a one that um, can aid him. One that can complement him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and brought every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet suitable or a help, helper for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. All right, here's the marriage. God brings the woman to the man. And he changes their status from single to married. This is the institution of marriage. And Adam wakes up and he sees Eve. He sees his wife. And he's like, wow. Um, and I think God was like saying to the cherubims and the angels, hey guys, watch this. This is hilarious. Because his eyes you know, went out of his head. And he said, I've never seen anything so beautiful. So he begins to spout off poetry in verse 23. That's what he does. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he, he, he uh, quotes poetry to her. And uh, you husbands, I'm expecting some of that um, out of you in the next couple of weeks, a little, little poetry. Of course, we might scare some of our eyes off. It's like, what are you up to? What have you done? But that's where Paul is quoting from in order to show, again, the union. There's this union that exists between Christ and the church. We are bone of His bones, flesh of His flesh. And our marriages are to reflect that. So God, in the very beginning, He was looking, He was looking even to where we are tonight. He was looking into the new covenant. And He says, I want a way to demonstrate. I want a way to demonstrate to my people my love and salvation for them. So I'm going to institute marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The husband and wife, they become one flesh. It's mysterious. It's supernatural. It's wonderful. They become one in so many different ways, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So this is the institution of marriage. Paul said, your union with your husband or your wife is a reflection of the union that I have with my church. Now things went really bad in chapter 3, and that's the reason we struggle even today in our marriages, because of the fall. Um, Satan tempted Eve, and uh, she responded by not seeking the leadership of her husband. And what really makes me angry is the fact that um, Adam just stood there and listened. See, and he did eat. Her husband that was with her in verse 6. So he was right there the whole time listening to this conversation. Now think of the ramifications of the fall for, for Eve. The punishment for this sin is death. Not only physical death, but there is this eternal separation associated with sin. So Adam just stands by and from his perspective, from a human perspective, he just stands by and watches Satan deceive his wife into uh, hell itself. And that's the reason he really makes me angry there. Because he doesn't step up and intervene. Now thankfully God intervenes. We recognize how we are saved and, and uh, um, well, I don't even want to talk about Adam and Eve's salvation. Um, I think they were. I'm not positive. The Bible in Hebrews 11, when it starts talking about faith, starts with Abel. But I think there's some indication that Adam and Eve uh, were uh, were saved. Um, if they are saved, were saved, we know it was because of God's grace in Christ. But we just see how 
the roles are reversed. Here is this spineless uh, male, and we've got so many of them today. We've got so many men who have really a noodle for a backbone, and they're just standing around. They're just standing around. Um, You know, we've got a, I might have told you here this here, but we've, we've got a whole new segment of our culture of, of, of people today. And it's, it's that age group where they just don't mature and grow up and get a job and have a family and take care of their own responsibilities. And, it, and it's sad. And we've got a lot of men that are not fulfilling their responsibility, whether it be just a natural man and responding naturally to the creation ordinance or as a Christian man fulfilling the obligation of a believer in marriage. And we see that in Adam. Adam did not lead his wife and Eve did not look to her husband for leadership. And as a result, now there is uh, trouble. There's trouble. Some of the language later on in the Scripture here in chapter 3 talks about how you know, the fall affects the relationships in such a way that the, the wife is going to seek to do her own thing and the husband is going to try and rule over her with force. So you got the wife that is doing her own thing and the husband that's trying to make the wife do what he wants and not in a biblical godly way and there's just a lot of trouble and there's a lot of turmoil. And we not only see in our culture people redefining marriage we see a culture, even in the church, where there's no recognition of what marriage should look like. And we ought to be humbled by the grace of God that we see in Christ for us as the church. And that ought to be the motivation um, in our marriages. That we might truly reflect to our culture that is in darkness what God's love looks like for us as they see it in our homes and in our marriages. So we go back to Ephesians 5, and Paul writes in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So it's a, it's a great mystery of how we are in union with Jesus. And it's also a great mystery of that union that's reflected in marriage. So his summary is, in verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. So he wants her best. Her best interests are in his mind. Just as Christ's best interest was in mind for us. So we are to love our wives even as we love ourselves. And then the wife's responsibility again. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. That she respects him. That she cares for him. Um that she seeks to submit her life to Him. That's what it means to reverence, to respect, to respect deeply. Because she, as well as He, sees marriage not just in the creation ordinance, but because we as believers see marriage in the light of the gospel story, the story of redemption. Christ loved us so much that He gave Himself for us. And it's that motivation as a church. God loves me. That ought to energize us to submit our lives to Him. So as we see the Gospel, as we see the story of salvation, it ought to penetrate, it ought to penetrate every area 
of our life. This is really practical, isn't it? But we see how this, you know, this kind of gets under my skin a little bit when people say, I don't, you know, theology is not important. It is really important because the practical aspects of everyday marriage is based upon the underpinning of something that is very theological. Now, obviously, we don't want theology that is abstract, but theology in the Bible is not abstract. He takes a deep theological principle, and he says, here is how it is applied to your life every day. Every morning when you wake up and roll over, here is some deep theology. Christ loved you, and he died on the cross in order to save you. And it's in light of that that we respond to God in submission. And we try to fulfill our, our roles in marriage. No uh, marriage can be difficult, it can be hard, there's two sinners living under one roof, but it also can be sweet, and it can be precious, and it can be wonderful when it is experienced in the light of God's love and His grace. May the Lord bless you.